So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for bringing us together to worship your holy name. And um, we just thank you for this study, and we ask that we all learn and that we glorify you through um, our fellowship and the breaking of bread that we have here today in this home. And we just thank you for um, all of our friends that are gathered, and we pray for those who weren't able to make it today, uh, that they're safe uh, and that they're doing strong. And um, we just thank you for the great blessing of your son, Jesus, who we do not deserve. We ask for all of our blessings in his holy name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 1, um, and we did started with Ephesians 1 a couple of weeks ago, and we're just going to continue on. But unlike the first couple of weeks where I did Ephesians 1, 1, and then Ephesians 1, 2, we're actually going to do a couple of verses. So it should uh, be a little more of a story and less of a big, deep theology type lesson. And so I'll just read it, and then this shouldn't take very long, but we'll go through kind of the big points of this, and there's a lot to get out of this, but I think this is kind of a fun study out of Ephesians. It gives us a lot about grace and who we are in Him. Um, and anyway, we'll, we'll just get right to it. So Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, and we're just going to read. I know it's a lot, but bear with me. We're going to read down through verse 14. And it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to praise his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it's like a really big, there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, and, I, and if I was going to stick a title on this, I call us like the chosen ones. As believers, we're chosen. We are chosen people. That's a tough one to get our heads around because like where does that fit into our whole idea of free will? Like what does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to choose him? So where do we fall on that line? I, there's a lot of really cool um, stuff to go over. So I'll just get right to it. As we look at this, I want to just start at the beginning and start with that whole idea of blessings before we get into the whole uh, stuff about adoption and being chosen them. So looking at blessings in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we see blessings three times, and that's important. Because the Bible, when you see that it's repeated, things are repeated, like God isn't holy. He's not holy, holy. We see that Isaiah says God is holy, holy, holy. It's, it's emphasis. It's an emphasis thing. So when God talks about 
listen to me. He says, verily, verily, I have something to say to you. Listen to me, listen to me. It's, it's emphasis. So in this case, we're seeing blessings being repeated. But also the difference is the base word is the same, but he's using it in a different context. So what does it mean? So what are blessings? What does it mean that we're blessed, that he's blessed, and that he gives us blessings? So it's three different things, but it all comes from one word, and that word is um, eulageo. Eulageo comes from that word eulogy. Like, have you ever been to a future funeral? They speak a eulogy, right? And the eulogy is like a, a praise of somebody's name when they die. So the first one is God as a blessing, which is really means that God is worthy of praise. That's what means that God is a, a blessing. He, it's his nature that he's worthy of our praise because he's holy. And then it says Jesus blessed us. It means that he speaks well of us. Well, what does that mean that Jesus speaks well of us? It means when we're saved, he speaks blessings of us or well of us in front of the Father, right? So when we get to stand in front of the Father, it's Christ that says, I am making this person worthy. I have redeemed them. And then it says we receive every blessing. We receive those gifts. They're tangible gifts. Salvation is a tangible thing. He gives us salvation. These are things we will receive in heaven, by the way. It does not mean that we'll be rich and have nice cars and everything will be peaceful and that humongous lie of the prosperity gospel that's unfortunately crushing our country right now because there are huge, huge prosperity church gospels all over the nation where people believe if you just think stuff into existence and you just have power of positive prayer, or positive speech, you're just going to get stuff and speak blessing. That's just, it's trash. It's not theological. It's not biblical. It's not God. It's not the way he works. His blessing for us is in eternity. So we need to remember that. But this entire passage that we got here is a passage of blessing. And the good news about our future is believers in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to talk about today. And those who in, uh, inherit what belongs to Jesus. That's our inheritance. Jesus is like, I'm going to die so that you can get what belongs to me, which is awesome, right? So two verses I want to go over to create some context here. Verse four, in verse four, it says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before God even built anything, he in his amazing glory said, I'm going to give them a way to me. And I'm going to do it before anything starts. And then if we look at verse 11, what we see is it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. All right, so this is tough. This is a tough debate. What does it mean to be able to receive God, but you're predestined? So does that mean that you're predestined like you didn't have a choice? God said B was going to be saved before the foundation of time or did he touch your heart and you said yes and you received um, based on your free will well according to this verse it would say you don't have free will it says he predestined you so this is a big theological argument and it starts with the reformers like 600 years ago this has been the basis of what we call the doctrines of grace for centuries and it's really a brilliant argument that I can't take sides on. So I'll, I'll give you what, what I think. And this is awesome, right? So two names, if you just, they're insignificant, but they're important in that these people were great thinkers at the beginning of the Reformation, right? So John Calvin, probably heard of him before. Calvinism's a huge following in the world. John, he's a French reformer. He lived from 1509 to 1564, and he believed in predestination. He believed that God 
was sovereign and that he's the king and he set everything in motion. He controls every piece of everything that happens throughout history until Jesus comes back to rule and reign forever. And that, well, he still controls it, but that everything is perfect. And then there's a guy named Jacob Arminius who came a little bit later. He's Dutch, 1560 to 1609. And he believed that God's sovereignty and man's free will are compatible. And I'll explain what that means. But Arminius was a, a, a pastor theologian and he wrote a bunch of stuff that was kind of the antithesis of what John Calvin wrote. And after he died, a growing number of his followers were teaching all this stuff in Holland and they were um, teaching his ideas about grace. But the reformers that followed Calvin were coming against them and they didn't agree. And what happens is we have this thing called the Synod of Dort. This is actually a really important thing in modern Christian history, and it's something we don't talk about in the church very much because people don't know where this comes from. <laughs> Have a seat by the fire. <laughs> it is like awesome. Um, so in uh, Dordrecht, Holland, in, from 1618 to 1619, they have this, this council or this synod, and the reformers work out how God's grace is applied to believers and what part we play in it, right? And the 18 articles come out of this synod that we lean on, and as it, it leans more heavily on what Calvin believed, that predestination, that election, were how everything works, okay? And um, what we really have today is a polarization in the Christian church. We have large portions of the modern evangelical church who are totally free will, like, you know, and you've probably seen this, but it's like, come to the altar and accept Jesus. You know, you can choose to be saved. And then you've got the other side who's like, you can't choose to be saved because Jesus is the one who saves you. So then you can't choose to do something that only Jesus can do. Does that make sense? Like you can't choose something that is not yours to give away or to receive. Salvation is Jesus's alone. So even if you had the ability to choose to be saved, really, Jesus could be like, no, it's his. It's not yours. You don't get to choose what the standards are or the time or the place. It's all his. And that's an important part of what it means for God to be sovereign is all of that action is his. And it's a good part for us to humble ourselves where it's like, I, I want that. I want to repent from my sins, but I know that all the work is his. And that makes it humbling for us. So what we have is this polarization. So Calvinists stand on the word sovereign. That's their big thing. God is sovereign, which of course he is. To the dismiss that a man has no ability to respond to the gospel. That we're dead in our sins, as Paul tells us in Romans 6, and cannot respond to the gospel. Which is what they say in Romans 6. It says you're dead in your sins. And what a Calvinist would tell you is you're so dead that you cannot respond in any way, even positively, that you're dead. That's it. And then Arminians will claim that we play a much greater role, that we have total free will to choose salvation or reject salvation. Okay, And God made us with the ability to know we're dead and choose him as a savior. So this is the big argument. And this is what we're getting to here in Ephesians. And what Paul is trying to tell Ephesus is he's teaching them about God's sovereignty. So what we're left with is five points of contention between the two. And I'll just breeze over them. So... I'll give you the either side and show you how it works. So in Arminianism, we have what's called free will or human ability. So we have the ability to choose salvation. In Calvinism, what we have is total inability 
or total depravity, which basically means you cannot choose. In Arminianism, we have what's called conditional election. So God chooses you based on you choosing him, which is kind of a weird way to look at it. In Calvinism, we have what's called unconditional election, that God elects you not based on anything you've done, but based on something that Christ did, which seems more consistent with the gospel, of course. Arminianism teaches universal redemption or general atonement that Christ died for everybody. Calvinism teaches limited atonement, which is Christ's death was sufficient for everybody, but it's effective only for those who are in him. So sufficiency first, effectiveness. Arminianism teaches the Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. So if you hear the word of God, if you hear the theonoustos, if the Holy Spirit touches you, you can say no. Calvinism teaches that um, we are, um, through unconditional election, that there are no, um, there's no way that the Holy Spirit can be resisted. You are, uh, if the Holy Spirit comes to you, that you are going to respond to him because he's entered your heart and he's pierced you and you are going to respond. Arminianism teaches that you can fall from grace. And Calvinism teaches what's called perseverance of the, of the saints, which is essentially if you're saved and you're a saint, that you will persevere until the end and then you will be with Christ never. So we don't have time to go into detail about all of them because this would be like literally, this is years and years of study, but here's, and I actually have some really good notes that I took last year about all this stuff. If you're ever interested in it, I'll give you all my notes. Um, but they're, what would we, we would call the doctrines of grace. And the doctrines of grace are really important because we should look at them because it is how we're saved. Like it's our soteriology. It's the study of our salvation. We should know how we're saved, right? Because when we have an apology or a confession or a statement of faith, when people ask us, why do we believe what we believe? We should be able to say, this is why I believe that. When they say, how do you think God saved you? You should be able to say, this is how I think God saved me. Because people are going to ask you those questions in your faith walk. They want to know, why do you believe what you believe? And how were you saved? How did God do it? Um, so I think it's important that we'll be able to have that confession and tell people that. So there are some great places um, to create this sort of confession and start. Well, one is through just doing Bible study. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. But there's some that I look at regularly if I'm looking for some answers. The you know, Baptist Confession of 1619 is an interesting place to go. They got some really cool stuff in there. There might be some stuff you disagree with, but overwhelmingly it's biblical. It teaches us. The Westminster Catechisms, you get the Westminster Longer Catechism, which is really long. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is really short. It's just interesting stuff about our faith walk and how it is today. And it would be like these catechisms are essentially this. It... it we believe in the Trinity. And then it's going to give like a bunch of Bible verses that say, this is where we support the Trinity. I uh, believe that God is the father. Okay. These are a bunch of verses that say he's the father. I believe Jesus is the son. So that's what it does is it, it gives us those references and it explains to us why. And another one I just recently printed up a couple months ago, John MacArthur, who's a Calvinist, which is fine with me, but he's got grace to you. Um, that ministry, gty.org. And he's got this huge list of things of what his church believes and why they teach that. And it's exhaustive. It's all kinds of stuff. And it helps you develop uh, confession. But one of the really cool things that comes out of that whole argument 
which comes probably a century later is what we call the five solas. And the five solas is like the foundation for our why we believe, what we believe, how we believe, how we get there. And this is really cool. Listen to this for a second. It's really cool. So we believe five things. These are all in Latin. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, or Sola Cristo, and Soli Dea Gloria. So all Latin words that really just mean this, Sola Scriptura. In Scripture alone, everything is Scripture. Like Roman Catholics wouldn't tell you that. They would also believe that the history of the church and the church fathers, their church fathers, can add essentially new revelation into things. And we say, mm, no, really it's the word of God. The word of God alone is where we get everything. Now we don't set aside church fathers. They give us a lot of good things, but everything starts and ends with the Bible. We got sola fide, by faith alone. So it's our faith alone, and then it's through grace alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Uh, solus Christus, or in Christ alone, or through Christ alone, and then soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So we've got by scripture alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So that's like the foundation of our faith, right? So it's interesting that those arguments through the Reformation end up becoming those things. So where do I stand on it? Calvinism versus Arminianism? I don't know. I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so I, Calvinism, I lean really closer to because I think it's well, more well-studied and more well-laid out. Um, if I was going to define myself, I define myself as what's called the provisionist or provisionism. It's, it's, it's somewhere in the middle, but closer to Calvin where God provides the means and I am powerless over grace. Grace is only God's, but I can respond. Like I believe that I responded. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I just don't understand it. But I believe that there is a part that we play in it because there's things like Mark 1.5 and Acts 2.38 where we have this idea that we are to repent and believe. So repentance is something I have to do. Believing is something I have to do. So I believe that Gospels teach a response, which would be the antithesis of what Calvinists believe. Um, but I also believe that it is a, what we call a monergistic work. Like I have no, it's only God that does that work. I don't do any of that work. All the grace is his. The salvation work is his. I can't do anything to be saved. I just believe <clears throat> that I can recognize that I am dead in my sin and that I need a savior. Where the Calvinist would say, you can't recognize that you're a sinner. There's nothing you can do that's good. So that's kind of the only point that I would disagree on. Everything else they do, I think is awesome. And I think Calvinists are leading the way in reformative style preaching and teaching and exposition because that's what they do. They dig into the word of God. So um, I'm also reminded, and I've said this before in church and in Bible studies, that even um, John MacArthur, who I lean on heavily for a lot of my just studies these days and what I listen to because he's a brilliant teacher, preacher, theologian, is one of the things he was asked in a, in a study, somebody was like, where do you get the idea that somebody has to respond, but then everything is that they are elected. They are elected, but they have to respond. And his answer is, I don't know. He's like one of the greatest modern minds of theology. And he's like, I don't know how it works, but I know it's true. <laughs> like it's true, but I don't know how it works. It's like my computer. I turn the computer on in the morning. I have absolutely no idea what's going on inside that thing. So does the computer turn on? Yes. Did I do something to make it really? Not really. I didn't really do anything. Although not a, not a great example. 
but it's truly a mystery. But I know this, we are elected. He predestined us, period. It's true. But I feel like I responded. So um, both are true. Um, and that is a great mystery. So in all this confusion, confusion caused by theologians who wrestle with this, there are some truths that give us hope. And that's where this whole passage gives us hope, peace, and real understanding of God's blessings, which is what we're hearing here is God's blessings. We're going to be, these are the things that we get out of this. Without rereading it, we're going to be holy and blameless before him. Holy means set aside, so he's going to make us holy. We're not like anything else. We're uniquely made in his image. And there will be no more guilt to carry and no more sorrow. We get adopted, which is really awesome. This idea of adoption we talked about in Galatians, and this really lays it out even deeper. This idea of huothesia, which is, it's not our idea of adoption. It's actually this idea that, um, imagine if you will, if Carol and I adopted a kid that was not our race or culture, but as soon as we adopted them in, they took on what we look like, what we sound like, how we love one another, like they physically changed, that everything about them changed to look like us. And that's what adoption looks like. Although we are outside of Christ and we don't look like him, we don't act like him, we don't love like him, we don't have any of his attributes, as soon as he adopts us into him, we become holy, we become not like a God, that's not right, but we, we come, we look holy, we look redeemed, we look loved, we look like part of God's family. Those are attributes that we take on in our salvation, and it's really important when we're adopted that we see that. The other great thing we see is that we're going to be redeemed by Jesus' blood, right? His death was not in vain, he died for us, his blood was not in vain. It's part of God's amazing plan before our lives. Before the foundation of the earth, he knew that he was going to do this for us. He loved even the idea of his creation so much that he devised a plan to keep it holy and perfect, even at his own expense, which is pretty amazing. We don't even think about this when we have our own kids. Like before you had kids, did you ever think, these are the things I'm going to do to sacrifice for my kids? Probably not. The kids come out and then they start growing up and then you just realize that there are sacrifices. God knew way before. When we hear and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get sealed in him, which is a really important thing. We're secure in him. And this is great news when we feel inadequate because like you guys, I, prob I feel inadequate regularly. I'm not doing well enough in my marriage. As a parent, as a believer, I feel inadequate. It's great news when our kids go astray, when our kids do things that we don't want them to do because I've given them the gospel, they've accepted the gospel and they love Jesus. And for me, I know that they're saved. And this is an amazing reassurance it, because he sealed them. Our strength and faith, our time in the Bible, our good works are not in any way powerful enough to keep us safe, right? It's the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. And what this passage says is that is the guarantee that we have, that Holy Spirit comes into us and Christ has redeemed us. And that's the guarantee that we have as the ones who will inherit God's promise and God's blessing. You see, it's all for God's glory. And this is the question I have when we talk about things like this, and I'll close with this, but when you listen to reformers talk a lot, and you hear this argument between the two, talk about 
It's all for God's glory. It's all for God's glory. And it's like, why? Like, why is that the important part that it's for God? Why do this for God? Why did Jesus die for God, not for us? Why did Jesus die to glorify his father, not for us? Why do we repent and believe for God's glory instead of our own salvation? Why is it all about the father? Why is it all about him? Isn't it about me? And the answer is no, it is all about him. But here's why. Here's the kicker. And here's a great place to close. So how does it benefit me? Is it selfish? So I'm going to turn to Romans 9 real quick. You guys know if you, unless you want to go there. But I'm going to turn to Romans 9, verse 19 to 26. And just listen to me for a second. And you close on this, like I said. It says in Romans 9, 19, um, this is all about God's sovereignty in this thing and people questioning God. You're questioning God's plan, questioning God's work. And Paul is telling them, will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? You've heard the story of the potter before. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews, but also the Gentiles, as indeed he says this in Hosea, Paul goes back to Hosea and says, those who are not my people, I call my people and her who is not my beloved, I call my beloved. The very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they are called the sons of the living God. Why is this important? Well, because God doesn't need our selfish thoughts. He's God. Who are we to say that the potter doesn't deserve the glory? Who are we to, deserve, to decide you know, what is best for us or for him or for Christ. So it's really because he is holy and he is separated. But even better than that, even better than that, even more important to that, if we go back to verse 23 and we look at his plan, his glory is our reward. It says that we're vessels prepared for glory. See, we don't have glory right now. Glory, like holiness, is set aside. It's deserving of something. We deserve nothing. And in this thing, we get to enjoy, it says here in Romans, riches with him. Um, this plan for us is so amazing and incredible and unattainable by human means, we can't even get our heads around it. But the idea that him getting the glory for all this, that is our reward. So when we die and go into the next, or if Jesus comes back today, maybe tomorrow, we get to live in eternity with him. Our kids get to live in eternity with him to his glory. They get to enjoy the riches. We are vessels who will be filled up with his glory, filled up with his love, filled up with his holiness. And that is our selfish reward. We give it all to him, but he pours it into us undeservingly. It's as easy as repenting of our sin and believing in his son, Jesus Christ. His entire plan is to glorify himself and in that glory, share those riches with his creation in perfect forever eternity amazing right so this plan it goes beyond just belief in jesus okay this plan is for 
is for us. Yes, sir. This plan is for us to realize that when we do believe and rely on his son and he elects us to adoption in him, that he fills us with the Holy Spirit and he secures us in eternity and he fills us with his glory. And that is the good news. And that is why we are the chosen ones.
So that's, uh, that's it. It's, it's his promise, right? So this whole message this morning is about just realizing that this promise isn't something that's just a, a willy-nilly. Uh, it's not something we believe in that was created by mankind. Like what Paul is trying to explain here is God knew who we were before we were. And he developed this amazing plan for us to be saved because he knew we were going to screw things up. Right? And the cool thing was he loves us so much that he didn't just say, I'm going to save them, but he said, I'm going to show them the ultimate sacrifice so that they know how much I truly love them. And that's what's really important about this is that we realize that that sacrifice was so heavy and we respond to it in a way that lets him know that we realize just how heavy it was. Right? 